If you've been with us uh, in this season since Christmas, uh, it's, it's helpful to kind of look back and remember where we've come from. Uh, today is Communion Sunday. Jesus said, take time to remember, to look back uh, so that you can know where you're going in the future. Uh, and if you've been with us, you know that we've been through several series that have in, in some ways kind of built on each other. It wasn't intended that way, but they, they all relate. And I thought this morning would be a great way to kind of put a, a period at that end of that sentence sentence and to think about how do we incorporate these things in our lives in ways that allow us to live into them in the future. If you remember after Christmas, we came back and we did our mastermind series and we talked about how uh, the war is real and the battle wages inside each one of us every day over the truth of God's word and will it overcome the lies of the enemy that we believe about ourselves and about our lives and, and how if we can trust in God's word and apply his truth in our lives, it transforms us from the inside out. And then we went into our series called Made, and we talked about how being made in God's image means that we were made for a purpose, and we were made with intentionality, and that when we discover that we were designed to be carriers of God's spirit through the gift of what Christ has accomplished, we live out our deepest purpose in life through the power of Christ, and we find our deepest meaning and satisfaction when we understand that God made us with a purpose. And then, of course, leading up to Easter, we did our Hope rising series where we acknowledged even in the midst of these truths of scripture, life is hard. Life is not easy. And in the midst of life's difficulties, we have a savior because Jesus is alive who can help us and meet us in those places of difficulty and challenge and, and help us in our time of need like no one else can. The question is, will we run to him in those times of need or will our circumstances drive us away from God into other places where we're looking for help and happiness in our lives. Now, again, all of these sermons are online. It might be helpful to consider going back and re-listening to some of those series uh, for, for how God wants you to continue to live into them. But this morning, I want to put that period at the end of the sentence by, by suggesting that the key in all of this, and for us at this moment, is to realize that I think through all of these series that it's not what happens to us that is ultimately important, but it's what happens in us and how we choose to respond to what happens to us. See, I think our first response to whatever we come across in life is always internal, right? Our first response is always an internal response. We always react internally, and it's reflected then in our attitude towards life that then gets translated into our action and our behavior externally. But our first response is always internal. And one of the challenges I'd like to suggest for us this morning, and we've talked about this before here at Faith Covenant Church, is that in the midst of that, we are always our own worst critics, Negative self-talk for many of us can be a habitual downer in our lives. And real, the reality is the more we allow internal negative self-talk to become the, the general habit and the kind of conversation we're having within ourselves, the more it becomes translated into our attitude and our behavior with those around us. So that we become more critical and judgmental in our relationships because we're, we're just manifesting the same kind of conversation we have about ourselves. Jesus said, love your neighbor 
as you love yourself? Do we become more critical and distrustful in our relationships with other people? Or do we, are we becoming more and more encouraging and supportive in our relationships with others in our perspective on life? Another way to ask the question is this. Whose voice are we going to allow to be the dominant voice in our internal conversation? Think about that for a minute. Whose voice are we going to allow to be the dominant voice in our internal conversation? Or maybe you could ask it this way. Is your internal conversation more of a dialogue or is it more of a monologue? You guys remember the movie The Incredibles? Our family loved that movie. I love when the, the little kid falls back on the seat in the car at the end. He goes, I love this family. <laughs> but you remember the part when Mr. Incredible finally faces down syndrome and, and he's got he's got him in his locked locked in his ray and he's going off and he's just rambling about all this stuff and he goes, Oh, you sly dog, you got me monologuing again. <laughs> Is your internal conversation more of a dialogue or more of a monologue? What we see in Scripture today, I want to suggest, is that when it comes to our journey of discipleship with Jesus, attitude is everything. We're going to be looking in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We're going to start by looking at verses 1 through 5, and then we'll pick up verses 6 through 11 a little bit later on. Philippians 2, 1 through 5, Paul says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now let's pause there. There's other translations that says, have the same attitude as Jesus. The NRSV says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And the, and the message paraphrase says, think of yourselves the way Christ thought of himself. I, I, I kind of like this word attitude, though, because it feels a, like a contemporary word that we can relate to. We, we use the word a lot ourselves. We, we know about what attitude has to do with. And essentially, I like attitude because it, it carries the, the understanding of both sides, the internal and the external. Essentially, an attitude is an internal mindset or a way of thinking about life and the world and ourselves that becomes reflected externally in our actions and in our behavior. One definition that I found online says that an attitude is a settled way of thinking or feeling about someone or something, typically one that is reflected in a person's behavior. Another definition calls it a position of the body, there's the external part, proper to or implying an action or mental state. And the example sentence they gave is, the boy was standing in an attitude of despair, his chin sunk on his chest. 
And then this third one is kind of a, a modern usage, which I, which I hear a lot, and it has more of a negative twist, right? Truculent or uncooperative behavior. <laughs> a resentful or antagonistic manner. I asked the waiter for a clean fork, and all I got was attitude. <laughs> Now, I went back because I was curious, and uh, apparently the word in the original Latin comes from the word aptitudo, which is the same root that we get the word aptitude from, but it means position or posture. And, and it was really originally most used in, as, as an art term. So when you went to look at a painting or a work of art and you viewed how the people depicted in the painting were positioned or, or, or put into the painting, it was the, the attitude of the painting or of the people in the painting. And it wasn't then until later in the 19th century that it took on a more metaphorical use with the idea of having a mental posture or a mental position in life. And, and Paul says all the way back 2,000 years ago in the Bible that your mindset, your mental posture, the way you position yourself in the world in your mind, your attitude toward the world around you should be influenced and modeled after the attitude of Jesus. Therefore, he begins in this passage, you, you're supposed to remember who you are called to be, who Christ has been revealed to be. We are called to be a community of people that knows how to love one another well, because Jesus came to reveal God's love. Jesus said, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So Paul begins with a description of our new experience of relationship with God that has become available to us because Christ is risen and he's alive and we now have his spirit working in us. He says our experience is based on what God has done in Jesus and we've received encouragement from being united with Christ. We've received the comfort of the love of God that Christ has revealed. We now have fellowship with God through the presence of his spirit in our lives. We've seen and experienced God's tenderness and his compassion toward us, not his judgment and his punishment. See, if this is true for us, if this good news message of Jesus that we say we believe is true for us, and that's the gift we've received, then Paul's saying it's also what we need to offer one another. Be like-minded. Have this same love among you. Be united in this spirit and with this purpose in your lives. We are called to be a community of people that loves one another well. Now, one way we describe a community of people that loves one another is family. Right? Isn't that what family is supposed to be? A family is a community of people who love one another. And as a faith community, we come together as a spiritual family in God. But the question should be begged, what kind of family are we? Are we like your family? Are we like my family? I don't know what your experience of family has been, but the invitation to be a part of family for many people in our culture today isn't necessarily good news. In our culture, we don't all have all that great a track record in doing family well. 
So the prospect of being family for one another might not be all that, that much of an invitation as much as something to kind of run away from. Like maybe you heard the story of Thomas Hansen in Boulder, Colorado, who sued his parents for $350,000 on the grounds of parenting malpractice. His mom and dad had botched up his upbringing so badly he charged in his lawsuit that he would need years of costly psychiatric treatment. Or maybe like the author who uh, interpreted Winston Churchill's immortal words from World War II in this way, Churchill said, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills. And the author said, that kind of begins to sound like many of our family vacations. Or how about the little girl who was being punished by her family and she was put to eat her dinner alone in the corner of the dining room. The whole family was told to just ignore her because she was being, uh, having a time out until they uh, overheard her praying for her meal. And she said, thank you, Lord, for preparing a table before me in the presence of my enemies. <laughs> We're called to be family. But what kind of family will we be? Social scientists have begun to understand that churches, like biological families, are relational and emotional systems. And a system is like a body. Your body and my body is a, a system. We have various organs and glands and hormones and cells all working in concert with one another, guided by the brain to regulate the health and the functioning of the whole body. And the other thing that we're realizing the more we understand our biological nature is that health in the body is not determined by the absence of disease, but by the healthy functioning of the immune system. See, no body is ever without agents of disease. We all have bacteria and viruses and all kinds of things running in and out of our bodies all the time. The question is whether we get sick or not is depending on the, the health of our immune system and whether the immune system is strong enough to fight off the agents of disease or, or whether the agents of disease become stronger and overwhelm the immune system and then overwhelm the body. See, in the same way, a healthy church or a healthy family is not defined by the absence of problems, but by one that is, uh, has a healthy functioning immune system that isn't overcome by the problems that exist. And maybe the question that we can ask for us this morning, for me and for you in this family system here at Faith Covenant, or maybe in your own family system uh, at home, at this moment in time, am I more an agent of health in my family system, or am I more an agent of disease? Am I consciously contributing to the health of the body and helping to overcome the challenges and the problems that we face, or am I exacerbating the problem? How do I know the difference? Well, 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul told us we are the body of Christ. 
And the Bible tells us that Jesus loves the church because it's his body, it's his bride. It has familial terms to how God wants us to experience his love and our love for one another. Jesus loves the church so much that he gave his life for her. But he didn't die so that she could remain broken and sinful and diseased. He died and rose again in order to transform her into a healthy body. That truly represents the love of God for a lost and a hurting world. There's no church that doesn't have challenges. There's no church that's perfectly healthy. You're not going to find the perfect church out there. But what Jesus reveals to us is that God is a God of love and reconciliation. God is a God of mercy and healing. And therefore, our testimony is not just what we say, but it's how we choose to live with one another. See, if these things were true about the believers in Philippi, then Paul's joy would be complete, he says, if they act on these truths, if they live out what they say they believe. Then the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is advancing in their lives and in their community, and they get to celebrate that God is using them to carry on the work of Jesus in the world. Now, how do we know if we're living out the truth of who God has called us to be in Christ? Paul says, essentially, in this passage, there's a very simple test. Check your attitude. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. See, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Watch out, Paul says, for selfish ambition. Because selfish ambition is the virus that kills community. Now, a simple definition of selfish ambition is simply a self-motivated attempt to somehow gain the upper hand in any given situation. See, Paul says, don't let an attitude where you're thinking about your own self first and your own wants first and your own desires first and what I need first... Think first about what the other needs, what the other's wants are, what's going to be good for them. And if everybody in the community is first thinking about what the other needs, you know what happens? Everybody's needs get met. But if we all start from a selfish perspective and we think about ourselves first and we argue for what we want and what we need, what happens? Everybody gets left out, right? Instead, demonstrate humility that promotes the good of others, even at your own personal expense. From childhood, as Americans, we have been taught that we are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. And among these are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness which I believe is true and is good and is right. And we need to value that sentiment in our country. And yet I would like to suggest that what has happened over the the hundreds of years of our short history as a country is that in our modern mindset, we've added social evolutionary theory to the foundations of our country and the survival of the fittest. So not only do we come to church with the belief that we deserve to be made happy, but in our pursuit of happiness, it's going to come somehow at the expense of others. 
Because it's based on a core assumption, a lie of the enemy, that there are winners and there are losers, and either you're one or the other. Perfect timing. (laughs) Our approach to church then becomes an internal competition with the people that we're sitting next to. Because we perceive that somehow there's a scarcity of resources in God's kingdom. And if we don't grab for what we want and what we need, somehow we're going to be left out. And decisions often become made not on what's best for the kingdom of God and for the mission of Christ in the world, but what's best for me and what's best for my friends and what's best for my group of people. We come to church with an attitude of entitlement because the customer's always right, aren't they? I mean, when you uh, go out into the world and you, you, you buy a product or you uh, contract a service and you're unhappy with the way that you've been served, what do you do? I want to talk to the person in charge because the customer's always right. And when we bring a consumer mindset to our experience of church, what we do is we become consumers of religious goods and services with somehow inalienable rights, but we never become family. Not so among you, says Paul. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Selfish ambition can be an unseen virus that spreads throughout the body before its symptoms are even made known because it happens in whispered conversations in Starbucks and in our living rooms and over the telephone until it spreads into the whole community. How do we catch viruses? One person to another. When a virus enters the body, science tells us it enters into an individual cell and it hides inside a healthy cell and begins to multiply. It masks itself in the appearance of health because it's inside the cell until it gets strong enough and big enough that it can break out of the cell and begin to spread to other cells. And you know what happens to the cell when it breaks out? Destroys the cell. Paul tells us that Selfish ambition or a a priority of self-focus, a priority of me first, a priority of looking at myself and my needs and not being aware or even caring about what the needs of the other are lead us to a preoccupation with my wants and my desires and my needs. And it's the very virus that kills community. So what's the antidote? The attitude of Christ. The attitude of Christ is what functions as the immune system in the body of Christ. In your relationships with one another, Paul says, have the same mindset that Jesus had. Have the same mind of Jesus in you. Your attitude should be the same as him. Verse 6 through 11, Jesus, who being in very nature God did not count equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, be like Jesus. Learn to be a servant to those around you. See, the the spirit of Christ within us is what gives us the mind of Christ to guide us. It's what gives us the love of Christ to, to shape us. It's what gives us the purpose of Christ to motivate us to live into this calling that he's given us. What does a servant look like? We know what a servant looks like, don't we? I mean, we live in a service-oriented culture. When you go out to dinner and you have the waiter or the waitress come to serve you, you know when you get good service or bad service, right? A waiter who's attentive and and asks, is there anything else I can get you? And they're prompt to refill your coffee and keep it hot or, or keep your bottomless beverage going. And they bring your meal in a timely way. And when there's a mistake, they respond quickly. We know what good service is like, right? And we also know what bad service feels like, right? They come throw your meal and they walk away and you never hear from them again. And you're like, man, I'm thirsty. I want more. And where are they? And, and, and we reflect our understanding of that in the tip. We know what good service is like from our tax accountant, don't we? We know when we get bad service too. <laughs> Anybody been there? Yep, I have. <laughs> How about from your medical doctor? We expect good service from our medical doctor, right? We want them to be attentive. They want, we want them to ask good questions. We want them to care about what we care about and not just come with a sense of arrogance and a, and a dismissiveness and just tell us what we're going to do and not really care about who we are as people. We know when we get good service and we know when we get bad service. We know what it looks like to see Jesus who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he wrapped a towel around his waist and he got down on his hands and knees and he washed stinky, dirty feet. We know what service looks like. See, this is the attitude that should characterize the kind of family that we have among one another as Christians in the church because it was the attitude that Christ had. It's Christ's attitude in our relationships with one another. It's his spirit in us helping us to become more and more like him. Our unity with one another should flow from our own experience of the fellowship of God and his spirit at work in our lives. And I want to suggest as we come to a close this morning, it's going to be a few more minutes, so I I just ask you to indulge me. But but I I think there's an important application for this in our season of life as a church. I, I think we're finding this is especially true and important if we are to become a church that makes disciples well. In order to become a community that makes disciples who make disciples, we have to understand that serving someone else has to be our priority. Now, I'm excited that we have over 60 people who are currently going through our real-life discipleship training groups, and and we're learning firsthand about how this works and why this is so important. And a couple things that we're learning as we're going through this training is, is that looking to the interests of others is part of the maturity of a disciple. 
If you want to see who's a mature disciple in Jesus, are they looking for the the needs of others before their own needs? That's a a very clear sign of spiritual maturity in Christ. Do they have a servant's heart and attitude? Do they not only see the need, but they they work to, to fix the problem? See, part of the problem that I think we're identifying in church today, and not just our church, but I think many churches in the United States, is that we're not truly serving people in discipleship. And, and, and the second thing I want to suggest that we're learning as we're going through this study, and, and if this piques your interest, we're going to be doing it again in the fall, so everyone will have an opportunity to go through this study together. But one of the things that, that it, it's, it's logically a no-brainer, and yet we miss it or skip over it, is that di- discipleship doesn't happen apart from a relationship. Discipleship doesn't happen apart from a relationship. So maybe we could ask the question, who are you serving in this way? Now, not all of us might feel prepared to go out and disciple someone else or to lead them in discipleship because really we're disciples of Jesus, right? So we might not be prepared to feel like we can lead somebody, but we all need somebody to at least then lead us. We need somebody to disciple us. If we're not ready to disciple somebody else, then then somebody should be discipling us. I love one of the things about the covenant going back in its history is they always had two core questions that helped them keep focused on what was most important. And one of the questions that they asked is, where is it written? And so this idea is you could have any kind of ideas or beliefs about God and theology that you wanted, and we wanted to discuss those in an open and a safe environment, but you had to be able to demonstrate that truth of what your claim was in Scripture. We have to be a Bible-based believing community, right? So, so if you want to espouse a certain position, that's fine. There, there's a safe place to talk about that, but, but where is it written? Show how God's Word supports what your claim is. And then the second question that they would ask one another regularly is, how goes your walk? Right? How goes your walk with Jesus? How, how goes your relationship with Christ? Because it's not just about information, right? It's also about having an, a, a real and abiding relationship with the risen Christ who's transforming our lives from the inside out. And if we're not having an ongoing dialogue with God and with Christ in our lives, then all of that biblical information doesn't do any good because there's no application. Where is it written? How goes your walk? And I think one of the things that I've brought up in several conversations I've had about these real-life discipleship training groups is we might here at Faith Covenant be able to add a third question. Who are you serving? Who are you serving? Now, when I, when I say serving, that can be a, a loaded word, right? Because we come from a culture of church where we're always asking people to serve. We need you to volunteer for this. We need you to sign up for that. But, but in this context, what we need to begin to understand is that we need to be serving at least one other person in an intentionally discipling relationship. How many of us, and don't raise your hands because it's not a shaming thing, because I know that we all struggle with this, but if we ask the question, how many of us today honestly are in an intentional discipling relationship with at least one other person? Probably not many of us. And I think if you looked at churches across the country, I think that's more common than not. But you see, when we come to church focused on how we get our own needs met first and what the church can do for me and how the programs of the church are designed to feed my spiritual life, we don't think about how are we serving someone else in Jesus' name. 
But what we learn in Scripture is that a mature disciple of Jesus discovers that the path to finding our needs met by God is first and primarily through our meeting somebody else's needs. And we miss that. So maybe the question we all need to begin asking one another is, who? Who is it for you? Who's discipling you or who are you discipling? And if you can't be in at least one relationship with somebody who you're intentionally discipling and challenging and helping one another to take one more step on your discipleship journey with Jesus, then maybe we're really not in discipleship. Now, we're going to be working on this a lot together as a church in the weeks and the months and even the years ahead because we believe that God is calling us to be a church that learns how to do discipleship well. But I want to wrap up for us this morning by suggesting that there's another third kind of definition of this word attitude that I discovered in my study that was kind of fun. So in our new modern age, a new use of this word has emerged in the field of aeronautics. If you build airplanes or you fly airplanes, you know that attitude controls in an airplane become very important. Because the attitude of the plane determines whether it's going to stay in the air and whether it's going to arrive at the destination, right? So now the attitude of a plane, uh, I'm going to, Anthony, you can help me with this, right? Uh, There's pitch, roll, and yaw. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a small, you know, prop plane. We don't get this a lot in our jets, but you've ever been in a small prop plane that just like kind of wiggles all over the place and you're like, whoa, Well, in order to be able to control the attitude of the plane, to keep it on track in the air and to get it to its destination, there have to be these controls. And what we're discovering is that in order to use these controls to control the attitude, there has to be what they call an inertial frame of reference. Now, an inertial frame of reference in my layman's terms, is an immovable object that you can keep your eyes on that help you keep your orientation while you're moving. You need an immovable object that you keep your eyes on so you can orient yourself to that object while you're moving. So for pilots, that's the horizon, right? It's the planet. They can look at that horizon and they can tell what the plane is doing visually by, by, by keeping that inertial frame of reference in their eyes. Maybe the question for you in your life, in this moment, what do you look to to be your inertial frame of reference so that you know that your orientation is in the right direction for you? Are you your own inertial frame of reference? I don't know that I'd want to fly in a plane where the pilot had himself or herself as their inertial frame of reference. That that plane probably wouldn't stay in the air too long, would it? See, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, is all about setting our inertial frame of reference on Christ alone as we look to how he did it and we understand his attitude and we understand his mindset that it wasn't about himself first but he gave up everything for the sake of others to show the love of Christ to them that's our attitude as well and we experience comfort and encouragement and love and unity as believers of Christ and as a result we therefore get to express that to one another in our relationships as well here again Paul emphasizes that it's our attitude toward Christ that affects our attitude towards one another. 
how we frame our attitudes is crucial to discipleship and to living the Christian life. Would you pray with me? God, we come this morning knowing that we almost regularly need an attitude adjustment. So we ask, God, that through your word this morning and through your mercy and your grace, you would forgive us for the ways that we have allowed our attitudes to get off track. Reset them this morning and help us to see your calling in our lives to be able to love one another well so that we can be a true spiritual family. And for many of us who've not experienced the goodness of what family should be, help us to be able to help one another experience that in a new and a healing way. God, help us to know how to make disciples and how to do that well so that we are truly carrying out the mission of Christ in the world, to make disciples and to teach them to obey everything that you have commanded us. And we know that you are with us to the very end of the age. Amen.